I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Flesh fetish. American International Pictures offer two extreme tales of shock. Super Shock 1. The Ultimate Nightmare. Cannibal Girls. There is never a meat shortage for Cannibal Girls. The sound of a bell will warn you when to close and open your eyes. When it rings, close your eyes and try to forget Cannibal Girls. Super Shock 2. You may never sleep again after experiencing raw meat. I imagine as each one died. The others ate him. <laughs> raw meat, a bloody cut above from the land of the hungry dead. Cannibal Girls and Raw Meat, together a full color. Fresh fetish. Rated R from American International Pictures. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this spooky season edition of the program, as we draw ever closer to Halloween, a previously unpublished conversation with Kevin J. Wetmore, author of Eaters of the Dead, Myths and Realities of Cannibal Monsters, on the cultural history of corpse-eating creatures, such as the Zombie, the Wendigo, the Filipino Aswang, the Arabic Ghoul, and assorted cannibalistic killers like the Mad Family from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Kevin Wetmore, author of Eaters of the Dead, 
myths and realities of cannibal monsters. When they thirst for your blood, you'll know a new way to die. It's an epidemic of killing, turning the streets into a slaughterhouse and the city of Atlanta into a blood-soaked graveyard. It's the final unspeakable horror. John Saxon in Cannibals in the Streets, rated R. Welcome to Parallax Views. Kevin J. Wetmore Jr., author of the really fascinating book, uh, gets into a little bit of grim territory, uh, but it's called Eaters of the Dead, Myths and Realities of Cannibal Monsters. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. And thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So, Kevin, I, I guess we should start with maybe your background and how you came to write a book uh, that's sort of a, a cultural excavation of the, the history of cannibalism, especially in uh, folklore and, and literature and pop culture. Sure. Uh, my own background, actually, I'm a theater professor. Uh, and so I, I act and direct and uh, do a lot of Shakespeare uh, because I have a beard and can speak beautifully when called upon to. Uh, but I'm also uh, in my other life a horror writer and I'm fascinated by monsters and ghosts and the intersection of uh, those things and, and why our culture sort of creates monsters and creates the fear that it does. And of course, if you read the poetics, Aristotle says that one of the primary reasons why theater exists is to tell us stories that fill us with fear and pity. Uh, and I've sort of taken that to heart, that, that the stories we tell are to make you scared or scared for. And if you look at Greek myth, certainly the stories of Oedipus and Agamemnon and, and all those folks are designed to make you go, oh, that's horrible, that's crazy. He, he's married to who? He did his what? Uh, so we're, we're sort of familiar with the horrific nature of Greek myth. And as a theater person who does a lot of Shakespeare and who's interested in ancient Greek myth, there's a lot of people being fed to things. Um, Titus, Titus Andronicus. Andronicus. Everybody knows and loves Titus Andronicus. Well, there's a lot of people I know that don't know Titus Andronicus. It's one Fair of the enough. more obscure Shakespeare plays. So maybe you could tell them it is, about it. Although Julie Taymor did a film version with Anthony Hopkins uh, a decade or and a half or so ago. And then Patrick Stewart very famously played it. Although there's one line in the film that neither Hopkins nor Stewart could make work. Uh, and that's the most famous line in the play when, when Tamara says, where are my sons? Titus responds, there they are baked in that pie. Uh, and it's impossible to say that line on stage and not get a laugh, even though it's supposed to be the height of the tragic moment. It's, you know, that sort of fine line between humor and horror that you see when watching something like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's terrifying, but there are moments that you can't help but laugh because it's so grotesque and over the top. So, uh, and also as a monster person, you know, the werewolves, zombies, vampires, witches have all sort of had their moment in the sun. But I'm, I've always kind of been a fan of the poor ghoul. I find ghouls fascinating. And the ghoul doesn't get a huge amount of respect, I'm afraid. Uh, and so this started just me thinking, um, and this probably reveals far too much about myself, uh, about corpse-eating monsters. And uh, it began to occur to me as someone who teaches uh, classical Western theater, but also Japanese theater and African theater, that... Um, we have, for lack of a better term, uh, a cultural history across the world of monsters that eat corpses. 
And no one was talking about that. So the book says myths and realities of cannibal monsters, and that's kind of shorthand. Not everything in the book is a cannibal because a cannibal is something that eats its own species. So humans eating humans are cannibals, but a ghoul eating a human isn't cannibalism. The, the scientific term for it is anthropophagy, uh, the eating of, of dead men, eating of men. So uh, when you start going through and looking for stories of things that eat dead men, you get Grendel, you get the Cyclops in, in uh, the Odyssey and uh, Euripides' play, Cyclops. Uh, you've got Gene Kaniki, you've got the Wendigo from the First Nations in Canada. You've got the ghoul, you've got the Aswang in the Philippines. There are so many cultures that have corpse-eating monsters and no one was talking about it. Uh, and they always say, you know, if you're a writer, write the book you want to read. Well, I wanted to read a book about corpse-eating monsters, so I wrote one. Uh, and the good folks at Reaction were kind enough to publish it and uh, incredibly supportive, found some great illustrations for the book. So if you're interested in monsters that eat corpse, it's, it's an odd conversational topic. And this is, I appreciate you asking about it, but it's always hard to start that conversation. Why were you attracted to writing a book about, um, you know, corpse eating monsters? I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's a it's an interesting uh, conversation at, at at parties and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I heard you published a book. What's it about? Corpse eating monsters. I have to go talk to Jim over there. But you, it was nice meeting you. Yeah, I get that a lot. Um, it's it's partly the the idea that no one you know no one had sort of made these connections before. And uh, one of my mentors always told me it's the job of the professor, the teacher to see the connections that no one else has made and then make them so that no one can unsee them. Uh, it's our job to sort of make those connections across the world. So for me, that was corpse-eating monsters in this case. Um, but also when you think about it, corpse-eating monsters technically aren't that scary. I mean, the scariest thing is in horror movies, as Stephen King says, death is the monster. When, when you know, you monster, when the monster gets you, you're dead. And that's sort of the last worst thing that can happen to you. That's the great fear in all horror movies, right? That I'm gonna die. And corpse-eating monster says, nah, that's not the last worst thing that can happen. It can continue to be bad. And so we see this in like local news stories. They say, oh, we've discovered the body of that person who went missing two weeks ago. It was found in the woods. And it turns out it uh, was partially eaten by dogs or animals had been at it. And that's sort of presented as the ultimate horror when it's like, well, the person was dead. They didn't feel anything. It's because to be brutally honest, we're all eaten when we die. The second you die, you begin to be eaten by the bacteria inside of you. Um, you're devoured by... Uh, if your body is out, uh, within minutes, flies will lay eggs uh, in the soft areas. Um, even the word sarcophagus, and I talk about this in the book, the word sarcophagus literally means flesh eater. So the box that people put people in, it, we, we theorize it as the body is being eaten. And also as, as uh, a theater person- well, There's and, also, not to interrupt you, but there's also no, that please, idea please. of, uh, I guess you always hear it that, you know, once you go back into the earth, your, your coffin is put down in the grave, I mean, you're sort of reconsumed by the earth. You yes. become part of the earth again. Yeah. Yep. And how does that happen? Well, you're eaten by worms, you're eaten by bacteria, your body is decayed by things eating, eating you and, and consuming you, or you're consumed by flames. I mean, the language that we use of death is all about consumption, that you are consumed by the flames and cremation. And in cases of sky burial, you're consumed by birds in Tibet or in uh, among Zoroastrians in, in Persia. So the body gets consumed no matter what. But again, as a theater person and as, uh, you know, with Titus Andronicus and with, with this sort of cultural taboo of eating the dead. And that's sort of fascinating to me, particularly because one, everybody is somebody's cannibal. I mean, we read these accounts of the Jesuit priests showing up in, in what was then New France in Quebec and, and telling the local uh, First Nations folks, you know, this piece of bread isn't bread, it's the body of God and we got to eat it. 
uh, and the First Nations folks being, these Europeans are cannibals. And they're like, well, we just defeated, you know, the Iroquois saying, oh, we just defeated our enemies in battle, and now I'm going to consume his heart to get his bravery and show dominance over him. And the Jesuit being, what are you, that's cannibalism, that's horrible. And like, oh, it's just meat from an enemy that you're, you're consuming to honor them. And so the, there's, you know, one of the things that I read when I started researching is there's this universal taboo against eating of the dead, and it turns out there isn't. It depends what dead, how you eat them, and what you do, and when you do. There are a number of cultures in which um, cannibalism is actually required. Whether it's Could you give specific cannibalism. examples of that? Sure. Well, I just shared one, the idea of eating of the heart of an enemy in certain First Nations groups. Uh, there's mortuary cannibalism in, in certain groups in uh, South America, uh, where if you say you should bury the body, they'd be mortified. The, they're like, that is absolutely unacceptable. Why would you take this person you love and put them in the earth where they would be eaten by animals? Why not consume parts of the body yourself? Because this is an honored ancestor. It's called mortuary or funerary cannibalism. And the idea is you're actually honoring your loved ones by, by taking them inside yourself. There's also political cannibalism. Idi Amin used to literally chop up some of his enemies and feed them to people unknowingly. It's that whole Titus Andronicus thing of, oh, where's Brad? There he is, baked in that pie, and you just ate him. And that's sort of the great horror that we see in a lot of narratives and, and film narratives, this notion that we might accidentally eat someone, that someone might trick us into performing cannibalism. There's also, you know, I talk in the book about uh, the, the Catholic idea of transubstantiation, that the Catholic Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Christ. Uh, I, I was so going to say, itself, as a Catholic, <laughs> I've sometimes thought about that, you know, I'm like, wait, so it's literally becoming the, the body and blood of Christ, the, the bread and the wine. It sort of sounds like cannibalism. <laughs> Speaking as a Catholic myself, there's not one of us who hasn't had that thought when we first learn about it, when you're a little kid. So wait, we're cannibals? No, no, we're not. We're just eating this. Sounds like cannibalism, though. No, no, it's not. How is it not? Don't ask questions. Uh, so transubstantiation is a bit of a challenging doctrine in terms of the theology of it. But the, as a result, when, you know, the, all of this, the whole talk about cannibalism really comes to a head in, uh, in sort of the colonial period, where you have Europeans going to Latin America, going to North America, going to um, Africa and Asia, and, so, and the missionaries showing up going, you got to eat God, you got to eat his body. And, and folks going, okay, so Europeans are cannibals. And then the Europeans looking at people in these cultures and going, oh, no, you're cannibals. Everybody is somebody else's cannibal. We all see other people's eating of the dead as somehow problematic, but ours is okay. So that, that whole idea fascinated me. Uh, and so that's at, at heart what the book is, is looking at these sort of, as it says in the subtitle, the myths and realities of, of the monsters, because I'm a horror guy, so I'm fascinated by the monsters. How do we take the, the, the sort of fear of being eaten, fear of being prey, and the fear of accidentally eating someone or the desire to eat someone, which we also see because the monster is always a kind of desire. How does that manifest in monster forms? And you get creatures like the ghoul or like the Wendigo. And it's amazing to me that cannibal monsters or corpse-eating monsters always emerge in places where food scarcity is a reality. That, you know, in, in like Canada, where you're only a few meals away from starving during the winter. Uh, not all of Canada, if anyone from Canada is listening. You know, Saskatchewan is quite lovely, as is Toronto and Quebec. Um, but the, the further north you get, the, the, the food scarcity becomes a real concern. Same thing in the deserts of Arabia. The ghoul develops because it is very possible that you will not have enough to eat. And uh, one of the things that we talk about in the book is survival cannibalism. That, um, the Donner Party. 
Donner Party, perfect example. There's there's a subchapter on, on the Donner Party uh, in which, you know, these people are sort of trapped in the snow and they run out of food and they're boiling their shoes and they're eating the carpet and, and then the horses. And then finally it comes down to, well, this person just died. No sense in having them go to waste. And they create this entire structure of nobody eats anyone related to them. So if, if we're all part of the party and my brother dies and your wife dies, you don't get to eat your wife, I don't get to eat my brother, but instead, you know, the people who aren't related to the corpse can partake of it. In fact, there's even the law of the sea, which is if the ship sinks and we're all in a lifeboat, we can draw straws. The shortest straw is the person who's going to get eaten, and the second shortest straw is the person who has to kill them. And then we all eat. Uh, and when that happens, the, the general rule of thumb across the world is if, if it's survival cannibalism, you did this because you have to eat, then it's not murder. Someone sacrificed themselves willingly because we all, the rule is you all have to participate. It can't be, you know, uh, we all get in the boat and we go, yeah, let's, let's just eat JG. Let's just eat him. We ha it has to be a fair drawing. But so long as you do that, it's legally, it's not murder. And the few times that people have been put on trial for cannibalism because of a shipwreck, almost inevitably you get acquitted. But also you're known for the rest of your life as that guy who ate guys. It's really interesting to me. I was actually uh, this past week just at the National Press Club in D.C. And it's mm. funny because there's a little known plaque there. And it's a plaque dedicated to, of all people, Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal. <laughs> and it, it's fascinating to me because I think there's this thing about cannibalism in, in culture and how we look at it in culture where we're alternately, of course, repulsed by it, right? It, it, it it horrifies us, you know, that's why it's such a, a part of horror lore. And mm -hmm. at the same time, I think, as with anything in horror, we're fascinated by it as, as yep. a subject. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? Why are we both fascinated and repulsed by this grim topic? Oh, sure. I mean, that's um, that comes straight out of what's called monster theory, that the monster itself is a form of desire. The, and it, that comes from a couple different ideas. One is, if I might quote The Simpsons, why are you so fascinated by my forbidden closet of mystery? The second we say you can't, you know, this is something that we shouldn't think about or do. Most of us are like, I, I want to know more about it. You know, it's when you're up late at night Googling things that you shouldn't be because you can. Um, there's also this fascination. I mean, you say we're all sort of repelled by it. And yet Silence of the Lambs becomes the first horror movie to win uh, Best Picture. And no matter how much Jonathan Dem might say, no, it's a dark, it's a dark thriller. Okay, you can make up your own genres all you want, blockbuster. It's, uh, it's a horror movie. Uh, Hannibal the Cannibal is a monster, and we're fascinated. And, and Buffalo Bill, you know, who is a serial killer. And the funny thing to me about that film is we're horrified by the serial killer who skins women in order to make a dress out of female flesh. But we're kind of enamored with and really into the guy who eats people. I mean, his whole nickname is The Cannibal. And he's quite charming and fun. And Hopkins is clearly chewing the scenery like the cookie monster and having the time of his life. God bless him. And it's so wild to me, too, because, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of those Hannibal movies, but I also liked uh, the TV series. And it's telling yeah. you could make a whole TV series based around Hannibal, the cannibal Lecter. Exactly. On some level, you have to be able to, like, get inside his headspace. And he, he is sort of this refined character. So there's things that I think, you know, at the people almost find things relatable about him. Very much so. Well, if you'll note, it's not a TV series about Clarice Starling. It's not a TV series about the, the main character from Manhunter. Hannibal's the one that we want to focus on. And if he were just sort of a sophisticated, devious psychologist, we might watch him. But it's the fact that he cut out some guy's liver and ate it with some fava beans and a nice key ante. 
that we all go, Oh yeah. Yeah. I want to know more about that guy. That guy's fun. Um, it's, 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 it's characters like that. And Alfred Packer, the students at, at, at a Colorado university voted to name their dining hall after him. I mean, yes, they're college students. So they're having the time of their life sort of doing inappropriate things. But the very fact that you have to say the Alfred Packer dining hall and the thing that Packer is, no one would have never heard his name in a million years if he hadn't eaten people. Ed Gein, the Wisconsin cannibal who inspired Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. Uh, you know, the, and, and people keep coming back. And there are certainly a whole bunch of B-movies made in the late 90s and early 2000s about him personally. So we're, we're sort of fascinated by these figures. And when it comes out in the news, there, there is that sort of pleasure of something that should not happen did. The guy in Germany who uh, advertised online for someone to eat and the guy who answered the ad, then he killed him and ate him. Uh, and now that, you know, there, there's a movie about it, there's a play about it, there's an opera about it. If, if you want to be famous, uh, either eat or be eaten. We're fascinated by it. So I think partly it's a kind of desire to see the forbidden to, um, you know, when your parents, you know, the second your parents say, don't do this, your first instinct is I kind of want to. I know I shouldn't. I know running across the highway will probably get me killed, but I still kind of want to. Uh, it's, you know, it's that Thanatos impulse when you're standing at the edge of a cliff and uh, there's that little voice inside you that says, what happens if I jump? What would it be like to jump? That we're sort of drawn to, to the sort of destructive and morally wrong and absolutely horrible. Uh, there's just something in us that, that embraces the dark. I mean, and again, going back to Aristotle, the stories that we tell us want to generate fear. And one of the things that we're most afraid of is dying, being eaten. I mean, we have this atavistic memory of being prey. Uh, one of the things that I, I ask my students when I teach a course on horror is, um, how many of you have ever jumped in a swimming pool and then when you surface, immediately look to see if there are any sharks in the pool? And everyone laughs and many of them raise their hands. I'm like, why? You know there's no shark in the pool. You intellectually know. But on a gut level, you are checking to make sure that this irrational fear couldn't come true. Like, as a joke, your friends didn't slip a great white in there just to see you run. We know, but we, we still do it. We're afraid of being eaten. You know, more people get bitten by snakes than, than shark. More people die from bee stings than shark attacks. But we are far more afraid of sharks because they are just giant killing machines. Even though they're not, they've become that in the popular imagination. And when you look at the stories we tell, starting from childhood, so there are so many children's stories, Jack and the Beanstalk, Puss in Boots, Hansel and Gretel, that are about kids being eaten by monsters, by adults. Uh, and if you look, I mean, Hansel and Gretel, I think, is the perfect example of this. It's a story we tell our children about two kids who are taken in the woods by their dad because there's a famine going on at least in the original version, is like, there isn't enough to feed the whole family. Your stepmom and I want to eat. So good luck, kids. We're going to abandon you in the woods. And kids don't realize they're being abandoned there to die. This is one of, I don't want to kill my kids, but I can't afford to feed them. So if I leave them in the woods and they die, it's not my fault. And instead, the kids stumble upon a candy house. And you have a witch that lives in a house made of candy, but really would rather eat children. So it's interesting to me, too. We mentioned earlier that a lot of people don't talk about the the cannibal monsters as much as vampires and werewolves. And yeah, I think there's one exception to that, which is uh, zombies, you know, the, the ultimate corpse eaters in pop culture. And it's kind of interesting because uh, zombies start out very differently, um, sort of rooted in our pop culture as, uh, you know, these, these Haitian voodoo monsters. Uh, but then, you know, Night of the Living Dead comes out. And oddly enough, uh, George Romero, a native of where I'm at in, in Pittsburgh here, 
you know, he didn't even like the name zombies. He liked the name goals. And I, I want to get into what goals are. <laughs> yeah. But first, why do you think the zombie is the one corpse eater uh, in horror that uh, everyone sort of clings to? You, you don't hear as much about Wendigos and, and some of these other monsters. Fair enough. Well, I, I would, for example, the Wendigo and the ghoul are both culturally specific and have sort of stayed culturally specific, as opposed to the zombie, which is also culturally specific. I mean, the zombie is the first new world monster. It's the first monster to come out of the Western Hemisphere. And it's also a colonial monster. The whole uh, the horror of the original zombie from Haiti is that when you look at, um, for example, spirituals, they're all talking about when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. When I die, my troubles will be over. And the zombie says, no, when you die, you're still going to be a slave. When you die, you're still going to have to labor until your li body literally falls apart. There is no respite. There is no escape. And so that was the original horror of zombies. It's just that you're a worker who never gets to stop working, not even death. And then Seabrook writes his book, The Magic uh, Island, and introduces the zombie to the United States. And of course, immediately Hollywood grabs onto the monster and you get white zombie. which it's Bella Lugosi. With Bella Lugosi as Murder Legrand. Uh, the the problem with that is the title itself displays the racist idea here that, well, zombies are terrible, but it would be really bad if it happened to a white person, you know, so especially if she's blonde. And so the, the horror is a, a, uh, an American woman becoming a zombie. And we see that, you know, again, years later with the serpent and the rainbow, a Harvard professor has just been zombified. Isn't that the most horrible thing you can imagine? I've, I've actually had Wade Davis on this show before. Wonderful. <laughs> but he, go on. Yeah, sorry he, for interrupting. No, no, no. He has a fascinating relationship with the film version of that and is happy to tell everyone uh, my, my scrotum has never been nailed, nailed to a chair. The film took a lot of liberties with the book. So, uh, But what ends up happening is, is Hollywood takes over and Romero is sort of is the one who transforms everything because you have zombie films throughout the 40s and 50s. Zombies of the Stratosphere, the incredibly strange creatures stopped living and became mixed up zombies. What Romero does is he comes along and he does two things. Before him, zombies just ate food uh, and two, they had a zombie master, Murder Lagrange, Bella Lugosi, and White Zombie is the zombie master. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, in, in a way, I, and I don't know if this is completely true because I haven't thought about it enough, but I think in some ways he he takes it away from, it's not as, his idea of the zombie is a lot less racially charged, I would say, than what you see in White Zombie. Very much so, very much so. Well, that's what he does is, as I said, Wendigo and, and Ghoul are cultural monsters that kind of stay in their cultures, as opposed to the zombie that, gets pulled out of its original Haitian culture. And instead the word zombie becomes affiliated not with a, a corpse, a slave corpse, but with a reanimated dead body. And it's no longer about labor. It's no longer about working. It's now about someone who comes back from the dead. And the second thing that Romero adds is, and they feast on the flesh of the living. So he gets rid of the zombie monster or the, the zombie master, the person sort of who is in charge of the zombies. And then he adds this, this sort of, cannibalistic element and he doesn't call them zombies as you're right in the film which is one of my favorites they're called things and ghouls uh because they eat flesh in fact one of the original titles of it was night of the ghouls and they decided to get rid of that because the, they thought oh the eating of the flesh is going to be sort of the big twist the big reveal three quarters of the way through the film that'll be terrifying and they're not wrong so romero reinvents the zombie for as a pop monster and the beautiful thing about the zombie is it can be anything. You can do anything with this monster because Romero has ripped it from its cultural roots and made it into just a reanimated corpse that eats flesh. The zombie can stand for the masses. The zombie can stand for 
you know, the foreign invaders. The zombie can stand for ex-boyfriends. The zombie as a monster works for any kind of metaphor. But they're also truly terrifying because they're inescapable. Almost all other monsters, sunlight, Dracula goes away. You know, in, in sort of Hollywood's version of the werewolf, if it's not a full moon, you're fine. And there are silver bullets. And the zombie, once you have one zombie, as everyone knows, you have a thousand zombies. And the other fear is that not only will you die, but just as with cannibal monsters, what happens to your body after your death, you become one and you attack your loved ones. So I'm curious, since we mentioned Night of the Living Dead, and I, I don't know if you know this offhand, um, but I, I believe the work print title for that movie was Night of Anubis. Night of I guess Anubis it's a reference. Title. Yeah, it's, it's a reference to uh, the Egyptian, the Egyptian God of the Dead. Yeah, so I, is there any type of connection between cannibalism and um, Egyptian mythology? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no, I'm not, I don't know nearly as much about Egyptian mythology as I probably did when I was 10 uh, and fascinated with it. But the, the Egyptians have a totally different conception of the relationship of the dead. And it's this whole idea of uh, when you go through judgment that your heart is weighed against the feather of truth. But um, there's also this continuum. One of the things that, that, I mean, if you really want to get convoluted, our relationship to death has changed radically in the last hundred years. When you think about it, before the Second World War, most people died at home. Uh, people lived in extended families. And uh, I'm from a small town in uh, Connecticut, although I did live in Pittsburgh for six years and have a very soft spot in my heart, both for that city and for George Romero. Uh, in fact, the weekend, tangentially, the weekend that I moved to Pittsburgh that was the 25th anniversary of Night of, of um, yeah, Night of the Living Dead. They were holding something called the Zombie Jamboree at the Monroeville Mall. So instead of moving in, I took the hit to keep the truck for a few extra days and just spent all my time at the Monroeville Mall uh, in honor of Dawn. It was a wonderful experience. Enough of the digression. The, um, the, the world changed because death changed for us, or more accurately, our perception of death changed. In my small Connecticut hometown, in the center of town is the town hall, the big congregational church, the Methodist church, the Episcopal church, the... Uh, and each one has its own small cemetery next to it. Like really, literally in the center of town are all these cemeteries. And then uh, towards the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, cemetery, town land became too valuable. So cemeteries got moved. There are no cemeteries, for example, in San Francisco. Uh, the big cemetery for Boston is about an hour outside of Boston. So we moved cemeteries out so they could be in these rural areas like you see in Night of the Living Dead. Barbara and Johnny have to drive two hours to get to their father's grave, which a generation before, they would have just walked down the street to it. So there's this, this radical change and people no longer die at home. When you were a kid, you saw your grandparents or maybe an aunt and uncle. If you live on a farm, maybe someone got kicked by a mule or there was an accident. So death had been a part of your life from the beginning. And after the World War II, we changed all that. We changed the language of death. We talk about the death industry now. And you have, you know, you don't have morticians, you have funeral directors. We, we don't talk about the body. We talk about the remains. Uh, and we don't even talk, we say they're in a better place. The body is not you, you they're in a better place. You know, people would come to, uh, people come to my funeral or came to a funeral and like, you know, we're, we're sorry, your aunt's in a better place. I'm like, no, she's not, she's in a box over there. But we talk about death as if it's not a, not a thing that's gonna happen to us. And we've become a very death phobic culture and we find dead bodies terrifying. And so we distance ourselves from them. That dead body isn't grandpa, grandpa's in a better place. That's just what's left behind. That's what remains. And I think the zombie sort of really plays into that fear of what happens if all those dead bodies just get up and start moving. 
and we can't ignore them and they're angry. And you also will see a shift because again, horror is always a reflection of the culture that creates it. In the wake of 9-11, the, the Romero zombie is sort of slow moving. And when you look at the zombies in Night of the Living Dead, they're not angry, they're sad. You know, the, the noise that they make, uh, these, are, these are emo zombies, they're just sad. I mean, they're compelled to eat human flesh, but they're also listening to My Chemical Romance and they're really down. The remake of Dawn of the Dead, those zombies scream. They are angry. Their expression is angry. They want to destroy you and convert you to their way of life. This is the zombie as terrorist. This is the zombie as existential threat to the nation. So I think the zombie is wonderful because every zombie movie tells us something about what we're really afraid of in this moment. It's interesting, too, because I think you can even see uh, cultural changes and and sort of uh, cultural conflicts going on when it comes to the character or the monster of the human cannibal. So for oh, instance, yes. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I, I don't think it's lost on anyone that, it seems to me there's a real rural urban divide sort of thing going on with that because, yes. oh, these college kids uh, that, that like rock and roll and whatnot uh, go into the desolate areas of uh, Texas. And oh, the, the you know, there's this fear of the rural and uh, what's seen as primitive in the fear of the cannibal in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure, of course. And the cannibal is always seen as primitive from Columbus to the present day. The cannibal is somehow regressive. Anyone that eats human flesh uh, is, is, is primitive and monstrous. And part of what's going on in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is you've got these, I'll put it in quotes, sophisticated college kids. They're educated, um, they've gone to university, and they go to this rural area where the people aren't, you know, figuring out, uh, well, you know, what college am I going to go to? I think I want to be some sort of public accountant. Uh, instead, the local um, slaughterhouses shut down. You know, the areas in America that are that are being left behind in the 70s, as the inflation begins to grow and the country is stagnating economically, the people who are left behind are the blue collar workers, these Texas families living in rural areas that can no longer sustain themselves with the jobs that the family has been doing for generations. So what's the problem if we just eat people? You know, you sort of killing two birds with one stone, pardon the pun. We got a source of food and we're dealing with the problem of unemployment. Uh, the, the problem with this family, of course, is that you also have a big hulking guy wearing human skin as a mask who likes to play with chainsaws. Uh, and certainly that's a part of the title. But when you watch the film, there's all kinds of other things going on that, you know, they're, they're trying to, they give grandpa the hammer because he used to be really good in the slaughterhouse and they want her, him to be the one to kill the girl. They've got meat hooks hanging up. The chainsaw is terrifying. Yes. But it's just the fact that this family has now chosen to see human bodies as just another kind of meat. And that the people who are paying to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre identify much more strongly with the kids in the truck than they do with the family in the house. Uh, and we'll see that, at time, you know, even in, in current remakes of, I uh, just re recently we rewatched the newest Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where again, it's a bus full of investors who show up in a small Texas town who want to turn it into a better community and have Wi-Fi and, and change all these things. And uh, in doing so, they're inadvertently, again, stepping on someone else's way of life, which drives those people then to become murderous monsters. So... Uh, the cannibal itself as a monster changes through time, the human cannibal, as you pointed out. And I don't think Silence of the Lambs would be made in the same way today, not least of which because it's seen as rightly so as transphobic uh, and, and certainly anti-LGBTQ. Um, and yet at the same time, we, we can see Night of the Living Dead being sort of constantly reimagined and reinvestigated and represented. 
uh, sometimes by Romero himself, sometimes by others, but always sort of building on that mythos. And so the zombie film of 1968 is different than the zombie film of 1978, is different than the zombie film of 1985, is different than the zombie film of 2005. And if you were tracking those years, it's night, dawn, day, uh, 1990 remake of night, and then of course the remake of dawn. Uh, and along the way, we get things like World War Z, which is also about terrorist zombies. You know, after 9-11, the zombie transforms again. And I'm not surprised that, that we're seeing a huge explosion of zombie stuff coming out of, for example, South Korea, which for my money is doing the best zombie cinema right now with stuff like Train to Busan and Kingdom and um, uh, All of Us Are Dead, uh, which is dealing, you know, that's a direct critique of the Korean education system. But Americans are watching it going, this makes sense. Bunch of teenage kids in a city that's being destroyed and the environment's being degraded and degraded and the government is lying to us, but also saying, okay, we're going to bomb a whole bunch of people because that, that'll stop the problem. And that is fundamentally relatable, I think, in today's culture. So it's interesting. I want to get into some of the lesser known examples of, uh, sure. you know, the cannibal in, in literature and as a monster. One of the ones you mentioned is the Aswang, which is uh, from the Philippines. Now, I've always understood the Aswang to be a vampire. So why do you include it in the sort of cannibal category? Because there are actually different kinds of Aswang. So you have the vampiric Aswang, you have the witch Aswang, you have the Aswang, uh, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the name because I always get it wrong, but it, it looks like a normal person during the day, but at night, the head detaches from the body and with all the viscera hanging down, it can fly around and drink blood. And there's a particular kind of Aswang that feeds on human corpses. And so this Aswang, oh, and there are Aswang that, for example, only feed on pregnant women. So Aswang is, is sort of a category of monster from the Philippines um, that, that is sort of the monster that is both within and without, because most Aswang look like people during the day. Although in some cases, for example, uh, we have stories from the Philippines of uh, when someone dies, you have to watch the body very carefully because you don't want it to be taken by the Aswang. And for these corpse-eating Aswang, uh, stories are told of, oh, you know, my grandfather died and the person who was watching his body had to go to the bathroom. And when they came back, they saw that the body was still there, but it was actually the trunk of a banana tree that was made to look like my grandfather's corpse. And the Aswang had got it and they ate the corpse. So it's the, the, the fear of, again, what happens to your body after you die, the fear of being consumed, the fear of being taken. And particularly in cultures, um, which again, I was talking a, a moment ago about how our attitude towards death has changed, most cultures uh, see a connection between the world of the dead and the world of the living, that there's a continuum there. When you go to ancient Greece, when you look at, uh, for example, the Yoruba of Africa, uh, there's this notion of the land of the living and the land of the dead, and they're connected. And you have to um, pour out libations to the ancestors because they get that in the next world. And you see that uh, here in Southern California with El Dia de los Muertos. You know, the idea of creating an ofrenda, you create an altar, we, we, we remember the dead, and in the afterlife, they know that they're being remembered, and they share their blessings with us. And in the United States, in, in, in American predominantly white culture, that, that whole connection to the dead is kind of ignored. Uh, and so with the Aswang, there's this concern of, we need to make sure our relationship with the dead is good. We need to keep the dead ancestors happy. And all the various types of Aswang are monsters that interfere in that relationship between the living and the dead. So again, monsters are always culturally born and what can be interesting, but what can also be cultural appropriation is when a monster is taken from one culture and moved into another. And that usually happens through art. The vampire is very different between before John Polidori's vampire and Bram Stoker's Dracula. 
the werewolf is very different until the film, The Wolfman. Uh, and then we suddenly get this anthropomorphized wolf creature. Before that, humans just transformed into really big wolves, which suddenly seems inventive when it's done with an American werewolf in London, but that's because we're so used to the Hollywood werewolf. So I'm, I'm sort of answering your question in a very roundabout way, but the Aswang itself is a cannibal monster from the Philippines uh, who really tries to eat corpses before they're buried. So there also is this fear of, rich, of, of breaking taboo in terms of it is the family's job to bury a dead body. And if you do it wrong, you're, you're kind of ruining things, not just for the person that you're burying, but you know, it's also bad for you. So the Aswang is a literalization in some senses of, of the fear of getting it wrong, of not protecting the loved one before they're buried properly. So then the other one I wanted to mention is the we mentioned it before, but the, the Wendigo. Um, yes. Because I think a lot of people don't actually know what exactly the Wendigo is. They may have heard the term. Mm-hmm. They may have heard of it as a monster, but they, they may not know the story of it. Yeah, the, the Wendigo is a First Nations monster, primarily uh, Cree and Ojibwe, uh, which, for example, the film Ravenous somehow takes this monster from Canada and moves it to the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, okay, cultural appropriation, fine. Um, the Wendigo is uh, described in a bunch of different ways, but it's usually an entity that um, is the spirit of hunger and has a heart of ice, and it is described as an extremely emaciated individual uh, in some cases, it has uh, it may have deer horns, and certainly that image has been grabbed and run with by pop culture. Uh, and there are a number of Wendigo films out there, uh, especially B-movies. The Wendigo was sort of the monster du jour for a while. Uh, so is it a creature, ago. you mentioned ravenous, so is it a creature that, that possesses people? Yes, the, 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 the Wendigo can possess you and it drives you to cannibalism. The, the Wendigo itself is a creature that, that eats people and eats human corpses. But also in times of great famine, the belief is that the Wendigo can touch you and turn your heart to ice, and then you become a Wendigo. And for a while, about 80 years, there was a diagnosis called Wendigo psychosis, uh, that psychiatrists or psychologists would diagnose people as having Wendigo psychosis, that because they were in a starvation starvation situation with their family or within their community, they believed that they had been turned into a Wendigo and consumed human flesh. It became a sort of explanation for survival cannibalism, that a person believed that they had been uh, possessed by a Wendigo and they ate their family and that's why that happened. Um, and since then, psychology has said, no, that's that's not a real thing, not least of which because there's never actually been a case of it that we can definitively prove this person believed they were a Wendigo and that's why they did what they did. There are real cases of people being caught having consumed human flesh. Uh, the most famous one is a guy named Swift Runner or Fast Runner. Uh, who is uh, a First Nations man um, from central Canada who was arrested after uh, the remains of his family was discovered uh, having been clearly eaten. Uh, he was put on trial and executed, but at no, and he said, you know, they, everyone said, oh, he was possessed by a Wendigo. Um, but in the end, the government says it doesn't matter if you're possessed by a Wendigo or not. Killing and eating people is illegal and you, you must suffer the consequences for it. So uh, the Wendigo is a fascinating monster. It's, it's, um, it's a fear that, you know, if you live in a culture where winter can rob you of most of your food uh, and you have to resort to survival cannibalism, the Wendigo makes a lot of sense. What happens to Wendigo, though, is what also what happens to the ghoul and what happens to the zombie and what happens to everything else. Algernon Blackwood comes along and writes this fascinating story, The Wendigo, uh, that gets published in Weird Tales. And uh, since Blackwood's such an interesting and wonderful writer, everyone grabs onto it. Blackwood's also part of that larger circle of Weird Tales writers. So August Derleth comes yeah, along. Yeah, he, he's uh, associated with Lovecraft and exactly. all those figures. And so August Derleth uh, comes along and grabs the Wendigo 
renames it Ithiqua, uh, the Walker on the Wind, and enters him into the Cthulhu mythos. So Wendigo is now Lovecraftian. Um, but that, again, that's uh, artists um, taking something from a culture and making it part of this whole fictitious world. So you have this one set of Wendigo culture, which is positively Lovecraftian, uh, but the origins of Wendigo are among First Nations. And there's an incredible amount of Canadian literature and drama that deal with the Wendigo as a metaphor for colonialism, as a metaphor for the experience of being colonized, the idea of this ravenous thing that consumes everything it touches, that no one is safe. And once it's touched you, you become part of the consumption. So you have uh, wonderful writers, you have wonderful playwrights uh, and filmmakers who use the Wendigo as a metaphor. And then you also have a number of people who you see in the Wendigo, a wonderful monster that you can just have fun with. So Larry Fasedin's Wendigo, uh, film the Wendigo, um, does that precisely. Uh, and there are, you can find Wendigo hints and other things. Ravenous is perhaps the best known film that deals with the Wendigo phenomenon. But again, it transplants it to uh, central, the mountains of Central California from the American Northeast. I was going to say, there's even there was even uh, at one point an American Indian thinker who wrote a book. Uh, his name was Jack Forbes. He wrote a book called Columbus and Other Cannibals, uh, which where he tries to say that colonialism is like the the Wetico disease or the Wendigo virus. Uh, yeah, that's that's a predominant theme in the academic literature and in, anthro uh, in anthropological literature that um, these these cannibal monsters are actually wonderful metaphors. Columbus himself was a cannibal because Columbus was one of the great spreaders of the idea that the, the people of the Caribbean are cannibals. Uh, and we have all of these books um, with illustrations of torsos and limbs on racks as families sit around waiting for them to cook based on descriptions from Columbus and those who followed him. And that becomes part of the justification for colonialism. Oh my God, we've got to go stop these cannibals and teach them the ways of Christ, and we've got to we've we've got to save the world. Um, and that justifies showing up and and uh, beginning a genocide. So it, it, the idea of those people over there are cannibals becomes an excuse. The irony, of course, being that the people who are spreading the cannibal rumors um, are themselves the ones who are doing the consuming, doing the murdering, uh, causing far more physical harm to the people that they purport to be saving. Uh, which apparently is a human quality that we will repeat over and over ad infinitum to the end of the world. What I also find fascinating, for example, is in Africa, um, the, the the colonizers there, the Portuguese, for example, and, and the Dutch and the British and French are coming in and they're announcing, oh my God, you know, the, there are cannibals in Africa, we need to fight cannibalism and that's the danger here. Um, but the funny thing is the people of Africa thought Europeans were cannibals for reasons like the um, you know, that we have reports of the, the slave ship would show up at Goree Island, for example, off the coast of Ghana or down in Angola, and they would see pots boiling on, on the deck uh, and see people who had been cut up, their body, bodies cut up and go, oh, the Europeans are buying people to, to eat them. And during the Belgian, in, during the war in the Congo, uh, the Belgian government um, would pay their soldiers by the number of people they killed, and you proved how many people you had killed by cutting off hands. So after after killing people, the, the Dutch would go around cutting off hands and gathering them up, or sorry, the Belgians would go around cutting off hands, gathering them in baskets. And the, so the rumor spread in the Congo that the, the Belgians really liked to eat human hands. And that's what, what was going on. And when they saw canned meat, for example, they assumed, oh, they're, they're canning hand meat. So they're, they're, that's how they're you know, uh, cannibalizing us. So as I mentioned earlier, everyone is someone's cannibal, um, but in large part, Cannibalism has been a part of every world mythology, but it's really during the colonial period that you see accusations of real world cannibalism having genuine consequences.
So before we close out, there were two more examples of, of yes. the cannibal that I wanted to cover. And that's uh, first, I wanted to cover uh, the ghoul because we mentioned the ghoul, but we did not mention that it has, I guess, origins in Islamic culture. Yeah, the, the ghoul actually is pre, predates Islam. The, the figure of, of the, the, the original ghoul, uh, which is spelled G-H-U with a line over it, L, coming out of Arabic, um, predates Islam and then gets incorporated into Islam once, uh, once Islam begins to spread throughout the, the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and it's this notion of this dog-like creature that lives in the deserts, lives in graveyards, and consumes human corpses. And again, just like with um, the Arctic Circle, you're living in a land where famine and food scarcity is a very real danger. And so um, and in the chapter, I talk about sort of looking at dogs and looking at hyenas in particular and seeing, oh, yeah, that's kind of perhaps where the origin of the ghoul begins is seeing dog creatures. Would, would, you know, there was an article online called, would your dog eat your body? You bet it would. And it, it was just sort of a survey of people who have died in their apartment and their pets consume their bodies. So. Uh, it's very easy to see the, the sort of connection between animals eating human corpses and then animal-like humans then eating uh, the bodies. So the ghoul becomes a part of Islam. The ghouls are part of the, the curse of uh, Allah. Uh, so it's, it's pre-Islamic, but it does become part of It becomes Islamic part of Islam. Culture. And we have all of these wonderful stories uh, coming out of Islamic culture of kings who defeat ghouls or ghouls that are sort of outwitted by particularly smart princesses or particularly brave heroes who go to the city of the ghouls and fight. And then when you have this sort of vogue for Orientalism beginning in the 17th century in France uh, and the connection, you know, sort of during the Crusades, there's no interest in Islamic culture per se, just in fighting uh, Islam. But by the time you hit the, the, the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment, there's this fascination with Arabic culture and with Asian cultures that pops up in Europe. And so you begin to get stories coming through and translated and the Thousand and One Nights uh, called in the West, the Arabian Nights, the stories told uh, to Scheherazade by Scheherazade, or by Scheherazade to Scheherazade, rather. Um, and then a guy named William Beckford writes a novel called Vathek, which has ghouls in it. And this sort of starts a vogue for ghoul stories in France and England. Fast forward to then Edgar Allan Poe, who, sees the, who likes this idea of a corpse-eating monster and uses it in his poems. The word ghoulish comes to mean anyone who takes an interest in the macabre. You know, people who are on, you know, on Google late at night, Googling execution videos or, oh, let's see the bodies. Uh, people who watch Faces of Death, that sort of thing. You're ghoulish, you're fascinated with, with uh, the dead and dead bodies. And then once again, it's that weird tale circle. People like H.P. Lovecraft, who writes Pickman's Model, and then The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, uh, in which he starts writing about ghouls. So that whole weird tales circle then takes over the ghoul. And the ghoul yeah, it's so interesting on. because it takes on so many different meanings, you know, like exactly. a ghoul could be a, a grave robber. It could be a, 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 a cannibal monster, you know? Yeah. And so ghoul just because uh, just like zombie becomes reanimated corpse, a ghoul is anything that eats the dead uh, or is particularly fascinated with dead bodies. So there are several films from the 1940s called the ghoul or the ghoul's revenge. In some cases, it's a real ghoul. In some cases, it's simply a human being who's turned cannibal. Uh, but the idea of the ghoul, in fact, to be brutally honest, the ghoul was sort of how the book began. As I mentioned earlier, I have a soft spot for ghouls, and I think they're underrepresented in horror scholarship. Uh, and they're this sort of fascinating monster. Everybody loves the zombie. Everybody loves the vampire. Nobody's got time for the ghoul, um, which is a shame. 
because one of my one of my favorite movies from childhood is a really sort of bad anthology film and bad with quotes around it. I, I adore it called The Monster Club, based on the writings of Archette. I Hayes. love The Monster Club right? with uh, the, Vincent Price Vincent and one Price of my favorite John actors, Carradine. John Carradine, who is in so many films that I will never be able to watch all of them. <laughs> Indeed. And here's this really weird sort of 1980 poppy thing with music videos and a, a stripper who removes her skin in cartoon. Very weird songs and telling three different stories. And the middle one is about a Hume goo, which is someone who is half human, half ghoul. And it, that's the only one in the film that actually scared me because uh, it's about a film director who goes to this village of ghouls because he wants to make a film there. And he, they, he finally manages to escape it and he flags down a cop car sorry, spoiler alert, and the cops pick him up and they're like, well, let's go investigate this. Uh, and they drive back and they turn around and he's like, why are you bringing me back to the village? And the two cops turn around, they smile and they have the same kind of teeth that the ghouls do. And you realize, oh, these are ghoul cops. Uh, and and that just that moment of, oh, it's that same vibe I get from zombie films of you don't escape, you don't understand. You don't, there's no getting out of this. It's going to end badly for everyone. Uh, and just the, the, the other two are sort of so, the other two stories are so fun and kind of goofy. And this one, is also, but it's very sinister. And just when those men turn and smile, I'm sure I had nightmares after I saw that film, but I, I still love it. I have the soundtrack, thanks to my wife. I have the film on, on DVD and watch it often. Uh, so uh, this, this whole project is born out of secret love of ghouls uh, and, and the ghouls' cousins and distant relatives from other lands that also get neglected. That leads me to the last cannibal monster I wanted to bring up, the legend of Sonny Bean, who people may not know about Sonny Bean, but I don't think we get The Hills Have Eyes, Wes Craven's classic, without the legend of Sonny Bean. Nope. No, Sonny Bean is responsible for so much. And this is one of those stories, again, that was huge. And everyone knew the name when, it came, when, when these events uh, had come out. And afterwards, hugely popular among the Penny Dreadfuls, um, and has kind of disappeared, except for those of us who are ghoulish. Uh, it's this legend of this cannibal Scottish family, the, the, the Bean clan, led by Sonny Bean. And as always, there's a, a kernel of reality here that then gets all blown up into legend of, you know, they, they live along this particular road and passersby would be kidnapped and devoured. And it's this whole cannibal clan that develops such a taste for human flesh, they absolutely refuse to eat anything else. Uh, and the story becomes so popular in the hunt and trial of Sonny Bean and his family then uh, Penny Dreadfuls in the 18th century, oh, sorry, in the 19th century are published. There are stage plays about Sonny Bean. Uh, and then the interest in it kind of dies down because, again, the entire clan of cannibals is just kind of grim. Is, it, is that also driven maybe by the fact that they're Scottish and, and maybe like, um, you know, they're viewed as other by, by like maybe British? Oh, very or, much so. Mm -hmm. Very much so. The, certainly the English interest for the same reason that the, around the same time you're getting Frankenstein was written, of course, in 1819, published in 1820. And immediately there are different versions on stage. You know, in the days sort of before co uh, copyright enforcement, John Polidori's The Vampire, written in the same uh, event in Geneva with that whole circle. Polidori's play or Pol Polidori's thing is adapted on stage in France and in England, and it's huge. And people are going to see these vampire plays and Frankenstein's monster plays and plays about notorious criminals. And so the Sonny Bean thing just becomes huge. And just like, oh, Polidori is this, uh, sorry, the, the Lord Riven is actually this foreign vampire. And 
Frankenstein is set in the Holy Roman Empire and it's in you know, Geneva and in Switzerland. So it's Germanic. And of course, Sonny Bean is Scottish. The, the British love watching foreign monsters do bad things. Uh, but that vogue all sort of begins to go away with the advent of naturalism or transform, transforms, at least on stage, with the advent of naturalism. And you start seeing sort of these more socially justice-based novels, concern about the poor, concern about, oh, the, the bad things that happen. And Sonny Bean is actually replaced by Sweeney Todd in some ways, which is, again, a cannibal narrative, the, the, the demon barber of Fleet Street. And there's a, a story called A String of Pearls, which is all about Sweeney Todd coming back and slitting people's throats and his neighbor then taking the bodies and baking them into pies. So cannibal narratives will knock off other cannibal narratives. And even Moby Dick was inspired by a cannibal incident. The sinking oh, of the really? Nessus. I didn't know that. Moby Dick uh, was inspired when Herman Melville heard about the singing of the Essex. The Essex was a whale ship out of Nantucket that sailed around the bottom coast of southern uh, of South America, was in the Pacific, and sank about 2,000 miles from the coast of uh, present-day Chile. So they got in the lifeboats, and they started eating each other. And then when they finally washed up, they're like, these people didn't look human. They were covered in blood. The lifeboat was filled with body parts. Um, these people were eventually rescued, and when they got back to Nantucket, it was all messed up. But their boat sank because the whale that they were um, trying to uh, land, because again, they're all there to get whale oil, turned around and attacked the boat and ended up sinking the boat. So that's the part that Melville focused on. But I think he was sort of inspired. You have the character of uh, Queequeg in Moby Dick, who is, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, he's a cannibal. He just he's promised not to eat people while he's with us. So the last thing I wanted to mention real quick, uh, because I know we're running short on time. Sure. It's interesting to me. We've talked about uh, the cannibalism and, and, and how it relates to horror. But it's interesting to me. We mentioned Texas Chainsaw. And also, you know, I, I would say this is true of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, both, both of those Toby Hooper movies. They're actually, you know, replete with, uh, sort of black humor or dark humor. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, you know, we see uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker. They started out doing Cannibal the Musical uh, about yes. Alfred Packer. And then they do that episode of South Park where Cartman feeds, uh, you know, uh, a kid, uh, his parents is chili. Um, so it's interesting. Why do we maybe find humor in cannibalism as well as something horrific? I don't know if you've thought about that, but Oh, good Lord, yes. Um, I think about it quite a lot. Well, one, humor and horror are, are two sides of the same coin. They're both visceral reactions to absurdity, visceral reactions to um, things that are not normal. And when you look at comedy, I'm actually going to flip the script and say comedy is actually horrific. In fact, I love Eric Idle's definition of comedy. Comedy is where you suffer for other people. So let's use something non-cannibalistic. If you look at the film Anchorman, most of the humor of that film comes from laughing at Ron Burgundy, laughing at Will Ferrell in an existential crisis because his dog just got kicked off a bridge. He's so clueless and stupid. His pain is funny to us. The Stooges are rooted in physical pain being funny. Dumb and Dumber, any comedy you name is about human suffering. And because we're distant from it, we laugh. Comedy and horror are literally the same stories, just horror we're too close to, and so we're afraid for the people. This is why, for example, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is a very funny movie, but Nightmare on Elm Street 1 isn't. Because in Nightmare on Elm Street 1, they take care to have the mystery. We don't know who or what Freddy Krueger is. We only know if you fall asleep, you die. And we care about 
uh, Heather Langenkamp's character and Johnny Depp's character, and we don't want to see bad things happen to them. By the time the fourth one rolls around, we don't care about the characters. We're just there to see how they die. So Freddy cracks wise, and it's funny when the you know when a girl turns into a giant cockroach, because again, we're we're not empathizing with the characters. We're there to watch bad things happen to them. In comedy, we don't empathize with with the characters. We're there to see bad things happen to them to laugh at it. So when horror gets it wrong, it's because horror has now crossed the divide into comedy. And when comedy gets it wrong, those really uncomfortable comedies, it's crossed the line into horror because we're like, ew. Cannibalism is terrifying, except when it's hysterical. And as I, we began talking about Titus Andronicus, speaking as a Shakespearean, it is impossible to say the line, there they are baked in that pie and not get a laugh. You know, Patrick Stewart's on stage and it's Patrick, Sir Patrick Stewart. He's a brilliant actor. He's Jean-Luc Picard, but he's on stage. There they are baked in that pie. And the audience chuckles and you can't not chuckle because it's a ridiculous line. And so it, it transverses from pathos into bathos. It becomes funny. So, we, and there are certainly comedies that we've watched that really get uncomfortable. And we kind of stop laughing because of how bad it is. That demonstrates, I think, quite clearly horror and, and humor. Kind of the same thing, just a matter of degrees. And it has to deal with the body. It has to deal with discomfort. It has to deal with not wanting, you know, not, uh, with pain, social pain. You know, so many teen comedies are about teenagers doing something incredibly socially awkward, going to ask a girl out to the prom and suddenly you let a loud fart rip and everyone in the hallway starts laughing. And it's funny to everyone, but to that kid, he's living in a horror movie. You know, this is, this is social pain. And this is, you know, the beginning of the next Buffalo Bill. Uh, that, that pain damages him. Uh, and certainly there's, there's a, you can go on YouTube, for example, and see Shining, a trailer for The Shining as a uplifting comedy, a trailer for Silence of the Lambs as a romantic comedy, because genre tropes are so easily taken and, and moved in that way. And horror and comedy are the two that are easiest to move back and forth. Oh, you can even see, I, I, I forget, I think it was called The Nanny with, um, I'm blanking on the actor's name. He played the genie in Aladdin. Robin Williams? Yeah, he was in that Mr. Nanny movie or the nanny. Oh, uh, are you talking about Mrs. Doubtfire? Yes. Mi mi yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire. I think that the nanny was like a Hulk Hogan movie or something. Mr. Nanny. Yeah. But yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire, I I've seen a, a trailer of that redone as a horror movie. <laughs> and it works. Like, it, if you know the movie, it makes sense. You could You could have easily made it that way. Because again, the stories are very similar. If it's harmless and, and we're emotionally distant from it, it's funny. And if people are getting hurt in ways that we care about, it becomes horror. But that's also why so many horror movies become laughable. Uh, the, I went and saw um, Paranormal Activity for the first time in a midnight showing in Santa Monica. And it became a comedy. Not because, I mean, it's a brilliant horror film. It's a very effective horror film. But there was a gentleman in the theater who, let us say, was uh, either severely intoxicated or the edibles had kicked in just before the film started. And so every time it went to, you know, night number three and the, the night screen and they're showing the door, he would very loudly start going, oh, no. Oh, God, what's going to happen? And he was clearly horrified. And the rest of us found it so funny that the film became a lot less scary because he was so scared. It took a very effective horror film otherwise and turned it into a comedy when, you know, there's a guy just going, God, Jesus, no, not the door. That film becomes very funny. So context is everything. Well, I want to thank you, Kevin J. Wetmore, for coming on Parallax Views. Let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and uh, how they can oh. get a copy of the book. 
Uh, they can get a copy of the book. You can order it directly from the publisher. You can go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, anywhere that you order uh, books from online. Uh, your preferred booksellers, um, you know, support independent booksellers. They're happy to order it for you as well. Uh, you can check out my website, www.allonewordsomethingwetmorethiswaycomes.com. Uh, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Haunted Kevin. Uh, as long as I'm here, I also just want to plug one other book that I have out. I did a devil's advocate on the film, The Conjuring. So if you like the film, The Conjuring, you can also find that on uh, Amazon. Uh, but if, if you want to eat about, read about cannibal, eat about cannibal monsters, there's a Freudian slip. If you want to eat about cannibal monsters, uh, the book's available on Amazon. It's called Eaters of the Dead, Myths and Realities of Cannibal Monsters. So thank you very much for having me on. This was a real pleasure. Uh, this was a fun conversation. So thank you so much. with your friends but they're all dead suddenly one by one they begin to move to live again the hell are they zombie how can we stop here take this zombie they are decaying they are missing from their graves Shut up! zombie it's shocking that's why no one under 17 will be admitted save me Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin J. Wetmore, author of Eaters of the Dead, Myths and Realities of Cannibal Monsters. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax News, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxnews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax news. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands, and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft? To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween.